Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. President Biden announces his budget goals for next year. He aims to tax the rich, fund the police and counter China. We'll take a look at how the administration wants to spend your tax dollars. Was it a gaffe or a signal of escalation? Some lawmakers expressed surprise at President Biden's remark that Putin cannot remain in power. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signs the Parental Rights in Education bill into law. The bill, dubbed the Don't Say Gay bill by critics, has faced heavy pushback from progressives. Today, DeSantis hit back and Walt Disney vows to help repeal the new law. A Wisconsin voter accuses Milwaukee officials of taking part in an election bribery scheme. It's allegedly funded by Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg, and it's not limited to Milwaukee. Opinions were far apart when bail reform was first implemented in New York three years ago. Now, New Yorkers seem to have found common ground, and most of them dislike bail reform. White House Deputy Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre has tested positive for COVID-19. This comes after a trip with President Biden to Poland and Belgium. Jean-Pierre says she saw the president at a meeting with social distancing. And that according to CDC guidelines, she would not be considered to have made contact with Biden. Jean-Pierre says she experienced mild symptoms. She will quarantine by working from home for five days and wait for a negative COVID test result. The White House kicked off the week laying out its spending plans for next year. The president's plan straddles priorities from both sides of the political fence, calling for a wealth tax and more spending for law enforcement and defense. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with more. President Biden at the White House today laying out his next spending priorities in a $5.8 trillion budget for 2023. My dad had an expression, he said, don't tell me what you value. Show me your budget, <clears throat> I'll tell you what you value. Here are some of the top investments. Almost $45 billion more in defense spending. The president wants to give the Department of Defense $773 billion. Alongside money to help Ukraine, it prioritizes China as, quote, the department's pacing challenge. And more than $30 billion to fund law enforcement and fight crime. In a bid to distance himself and the Democrat Party from the defund the police rhetoric. The budget puts more police on the street for community policing, so they get to know the community they're policing. And an $80 billion investment in health care, with $10 billion to prepare for future pandemics. Biden proposes around $20 billion for clean energy projects and climate resilience programs. While rising inflation is a growing concern for Americans, Biden touts his budget as fiscally responsible, with a goal to decrease the $30 trillion national debt by $1 trillion, largely relying on a billionaire's wealth tax. The billionaire minimum tax is fair, and it raises $360 billion that can be used to lower costs for families and cut the deficit. The president is proposing what he calls a new minimum income tax for billionaires. Basically, anyone worth over $100 million must pay at least 20% of their income, which will include unrealized gains. Entities Paul Graney asked a tax policy analyst what this wealth tax will mean for the economy. Uh, folks are going to spend a lot of time trying to value their assets and work with the IRS to pay this tax. And that's a distraction and a drain from the U.S. economy at a time where we really need to be emphasizing economic growth. And now Congress this week is getting to work on negotiating this budget. And lawmakers will spend months at the negotiating table before we can see what from the president's budget is approved by Congress and officially signed into law. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. A nine-word ad lib has sent tremors throughout the world. What is President Biden now saying about his comments on Putin and the speculation that the U.S. is calling for regime change in Russia? NTD's Iris Tao has more. A nine-word ad lib in the spotlight at home and abroad. For God's sake, this man cannot remain power. It's been two days since Biden made that improvised comment about Putin, but the fallout is still hanging over the world and Biden's own administration. As you know, and as you've heard us say repeatedly, we do not have a strategy of regime change in Russia or anywhere else for that matter. 
In addition to the State Department, the White House aides were also speedy to clarify Biden's remarks. They argued that he meant Putin cannot exercise power over neighboring nations and said there was no major shift in U.S. foreign policy, like calling for a regime change in Russia. And today, it's Biden's turn. Reporters repeatedly pressed him on his Putin remarks after his budget announcement. Or do you now regret saying that because your government has been trying to walk that back? Number one, I'm not walking anything back. But I want to make it clear, I wasn't then, nor am I now, articulating a policy change. I was expressing the moral outrage that I feel, and I make no apologies for it. He added that he's not concerned that it would further provoke Putin. Are you concerned this remark might escalate the conflict? No, I'm not. I'm not at all. But not everyone agrees. There's a horrendous gaffe right at the end of it. I just, I wish he would stay on script. Whoever While Democrats largely repeated the White House clarification, some Republicans are criticizing Biden for sending a provocative message. Anytime you say, or even as he did, suggest uh, that uh, the policy was regime change, it's, it's going to cause a huge problem. And Russia is also reacting. The Kremlin spokesperson today called Biden's statement, quote, certainly alarming, adding to an earlier response that Russia's leadership was not for Biden to decide. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says his country will insist on keeping its territorial integrity. It appears to be a departure from what he told reporters earlier. NTD's Jason Perry has a story. In a video addressed to the Ukrainian people on Sunday night, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said the upcoming talks with Russia will focus on sovereignty and territorial integrity. Zelensky's comments differed from what he said earlier in the day when he suggested to Russian journalists that he was prepared to compromise over the status of the eastern Donbass region as part of a peace deal with Russia. He also told them that Ukraine was prepared to discuss adopting a neutral status. Russian officials said that talks are welcome but stressed that no outside Western mediators were to be present. Now the situation is so complicated. The crisis situation in Ukraine, the conflict inside Ukraine, it has matured for so long, for all these years, that a huge number of problems have accumulated. So just meeting and exchanging remarks like, what do you think, and here's what I think, will simply be counterproductive. President Zelensky suggested that will not be the case, saying, let's see the outcome. Our priorities in the negotiations are known. The chief Ukrainian negotiator said peace talks between Russia and Ukraine are set to take place in Istanbul, Turkey, from March 28th to March 30th. Jason Perry, NTD News. While the pain and trauma is most acute at the heart of the conflict, the war in Ukraine is already affecting people around the globe in some perhaps unexpected ways. Commentators say trade sanctions rarely hit the target country hardest because other buyers will step in. In the case of Russian trade, what are its alternatives amid the sanctions? And how can the West cope with the impact of those sanctions? Earlier today, I spoke with chief market strategist at Theo Trade, Don Kaufman, to learn more. Don, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. And the U.S. and Europe are already feeling the pain from some of their sanctions against Russia, such as rising gas prices. So what could the U.S. do to minimize that impact? Uh, one of the things that we really have not done as of yet is really incentivize drilling at this particular point in time. I think we all recognize that uh, the U.S. is not only self-sustaining in terms of energy, but uh, has the capacity uh, presently to produce significantly more and uh, create much more autonomy for uh, not only the U.S., but of course, uh, many parts of Europe. And the U.S. has warned China that it will face consequences if it helps Moscow evade sanctions over the war in Ukraine. Yet some experts say China is benefiting from these sanctions. So what assets and access does China have to take advantage of the sanctions? Really, taking advantage of sanctions uh, on China's behalf is, is manyfold. Everything from the fact that uh, China, in my opinion, simply holds the key to many of the U.S. patents, whether that is legal or illegal, uh, they do. Technology can be transferred, of course, to Russia. 
obviously, there will be a, uh, a number of aspects involving the U.S. dollar that's going to be diminished when uh, trade will still persist between Russia and China. Uh, again, China being a great beneficiary of that. Is it substantial? Absolutely not. Nevertheless, in, uh, in many cases, probably be worth the risk, uh, specifically to China, uh, depending upon, again, some of the outcomes. And we have to see what China has uh, ultimately in plan before they have revealed their hand, of course, in this, uh, in this event. Is there any precedent for oil smuggling in China? Do we have any indications that it's already happening at all? So oil smuggling has been going on for a significant period of time, whether it's Iran to China. But, you know, you look at Russia, China, the land border, it's absolutely massive. So oil smuggling in, is, you know, going to be, you know, one of the primary issues that we're going to face. Nevertheless, as I was mentioning a moment ago, you know, technology being passed back and forth. Again, China production is on a scale that we can't even imagine here in the United States. Uh, sanctions, although very, very strict specifically to Russia, it's, again, it's not going to diminish China's ability to, uh, to continue to provide Russia with uh, many products they're going to need. And uh, oil, of course, being, uh, being one of them, that Russia would love to sell that oil in exchange for possibly gold, yuan, anything to kind of debase, you know, the petrodollar at this point would be really in, again, China's best interest as long as uh, Russia is willing to do that, which, of course, they probably are at this point. Don Kaufman, thank you. Thanks for having me. China is already Russia's largest oil buyer, and it's expected to purchase more at a discount. Analysts say China could triple its import capacity in a matter of months. They say if China ramps up its intake of Russian oil, that could create more pain at the pump for people in the West, and it may also help Russia prolong its offensive in Ukraine. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis has signed into law the Parental Rights in Education Bill, also called the Don't Say Gay Bill by critics. The legislation has faced heavy pushback from progressives. Today, DeSantis hit back, questioning the intentions of those opposing the bill. Here are the details. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed the Parental Rights in Education Bill into law Monday. The bill bans teachers from giving classroom instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation in kindergarten through third grade. The bill was dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill by opponents. They claimed it would ban any classroom discussion pertaining to being gay and marginalize members of the LGBTQ community. This led to outcry from progressive activists and politicians nationwide. Even Disney condemned the bill. DeSantis strongly pushed back on these claims. And they're sloganeering because they don't want to admit that they support a lot of the things that we're providing protections against. For example, they support sexualizing kids in kindergarten. They support injecting woke gender ideology into second grade classrooms. They support enabling schools to, quote, transition students to a, quote, different gender without the knowledge of the parent, much less without the parent's consent. The bill was mocked at the Oscars Sunday night, with the event's co-host repeating the word gay as the crowd applauded. DeSantis hit back at his critics in Hollywood, saying, If the people who held up degenerates like Harvey Weinstein up as exemplars and as heroes and as all that, if those are the types of people that are opposing us on parents' rights, I wear that like a badge of honor. The bill also includes measures to empower parents and give them greater oversight. Under the new law, parents will be able to sue school districts for violations. Florida mother January Littlejohn spoke at the signing. She said without her knowledge, her daughter's school facilitated her identifying as a different gender, including by calling her a different name in class and asking which bathroom she wanted to use. This created a huge wedge between our daughter and us because it sent the message that she needed to be protected from us, not by us. Many parent groups and child advocates say Florida is on the front lines of a nationwide battle. Parental rights and education is expected to be a hot-button issue during the upcoming midterm elections. Grace Coulter, NTD News. And the Walt Disney Company has responded to the bill's signing, vowing to help get the law repealed in the legislature or struck down in court. 
In a statement, the company said it's supporting organizations working to achieve this, adding that it's dedicated to standing up for the rights and safety of the LGBTQ community. Equality Florida, an advocacy group, has pledged to take legal action against the law. A Milwaukee, Wisconsin voter is suing public officials for allegedly accepting private funds from a nonprofit funded by Mark Zuckerberg to influence the 2020 election. The officials are accused of violating Wisconsin's election bribery law. NTD's Arlene Richards has the story. A national public interest law firm filed a complaint with the Wisconsin Election Commission last week, accusing Milwaukee officials of using private funds donated by Mark Zuckerberg in violation of Wisconsin law. The Thomas Moore Society, representing a Milwaukee voter, accuses city officials of using private funds to purchase and place absentee ballot drop boxes in 2020 and facilitating in-person and absentee voting. According to a report posted by the society, the former mayor and a city clerk allegedly accepted $3.4 million from a Chicago nonprofit funded by Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and his wife to influence the 2020 election. Eric Cardall, special counsel at the society, said the evidence is overwhelming and condemning and that this is representative of a national trend. The Zuckbucks uh, were present in all the swing states. And so Zuckerberg gave 300 of his 350 million to Center for Tech and Civic Life. And according to their 990, uh, the tax filing, they spread that over many states. According to Cardall, this trend of using private money to influence voters has led to other organizations lobbying to get laws passed. So 16 states have enacted laws banning uh, Zuckbucks directly. And in five, well, I'll just focus on these, in three states, the legislation has been passed, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, but the governors have vetoed it. The society's complaint documents how the Chicago nonprofit Center for Tech and Civic Life, or CTCL, allegedly persuaded officials of Wisconsin's five largest cities to accept private funds. It says this first grant required the mayors of the five largest cities in Wisconsin and their respective staffs to complete CTCL election administration forms, including goals and plans to facilitate increased in-person and absentee voting in their respective cities and communities of color and develop a joint plan for their elections. The complaint is one of several filed in Wisconsin regarding private funds being used illegally. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. The remains of four Marines killed during a NATO exercise in Norway were returned to the U.S. They were on board an aircraft when it crashed in a town in the Arctic Circle earlier this month. NTD's Allison Lee has the details. The bodies of the four Marines were placed on board an Air National Guard military transport aircraft and flown to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware on Friday. They will ultimately be moved to their final resting places according to their family's wishes. The Pentagon has identified them. Captain Matthew J. Tomkevich of Fort Wayne, Indiana. Captain Ross Reynolds of Leominster, Mass, Massachusetts. Gunnery Sergeant James W. Speedy of Cambridge, Ohio. And Corporal Jacob M. Moore of uh, Caitlinsburg, Kentucky. We're all assigned to Mar Marine Medium Tilt Rotor Squadron 261. The Marines were taking part in a NATO exercise called Cold Response 2022. The drills are held every two years over large areas across Norway. They were on board an MV-22B Osprey aircraft when it crashed on Friday, March 18th. The cause is under investigation, but Norwegian police have reported bad weather in the area at the time of the crash. The cold response drill includes around 30,000 troops, 220 aircraft and 50 vessels from 27 countries. Authorities say the exercise was not related to Russia's war in Ukraine. Cold response began on March 14th and will end on April 1st. The head of the Norwegian Armed Forces Operational Headquarters said the exercise would continue despite the crash. Allison Lee, NTD News. Unvaccinated United Airlines staff were allowed back on the job today after being put on unpaid leave. That's according to an internal memo reviewed by Fox Business. United's Vice President of Human Resources said in the memo that the airline is confident in its ability to safely bring back the employees, citing a decline in virus cases, deaths and hospitalizations. 
over 2,000 United employees who received a medical or religious exemption from the vaccine were placed on unpaid leave. The memo says that five out of the 2,200 employees who had received an exemption died of the virus. Employees were also told the company will reevaluate protocols if another variant emerges or the COVID trends suddenly reverse course. Coming up, a new poll shows New Yorkers aren't happy with the current bail system. A reform was first implemented three years ago, but now many say it's not working. And Will Smith won his first Academy Award during the Oscars ceremony, but an unexpected incident seems to have overshadowed the event. That and more here on NTD News. speaks we don't just scratch the surface we want to go wide and deep our viewers come away with a much richer understanding of the issues of the day we really make a big effort to bring on different voices onto the show we don't just talk to experts and newsmakers which of course are extremely important but we also want to hear from the American people so the people who are impacted by the policies and issues that we're talking about because what they have to say is just as important to the national conversation Some New Yorkers are not happy with current bail laws and say crime is going up because of it. A new poll shows that many want changes to the state's bail reform, which was implemented in 2019. In 2019, New York passed a law eliminating monetary bail for people facing misdemeanor and nonviolent felony charges. A new poll by the Siena College Research Institute shows that back in April of 2019, 55% of New Yorkers thought bail reform was good for New York. Now that it's been in place for three years, only 30% of New Yorkers think it's good for their state. 64% of New Yorkers think bail reform has resulted in an increase in crime. And 82% think judges should have more say in whether to set bail or not. Today, New York City's mayor blamed the increase in shootings on the way criminals are being prosecuted. That continue to get arrested, come back out, and get arrested again. You know, someone says, Eric, we know we're watching you at these press conferences. You seem angry and frustrated because New Yorkers are angry and frustrated. Mayor Adams and New York Governor Kathy Hochul have said they want to make changes to current bail laws. A plan from the Biden administration to close veteran health administration hospitals and outpatient clinics is meeting opposition from both Democrats and Republicans. Especially some officials in New York seem to dislike the idea. If the Veterans Administration's plans go through, VA hospitals and outpatient clinics across the country would close, including two of three veterans' hospitals in New York City. Patients would then have to go to surrounding hospitals, which, according to one veteran, would lead to overfilled hospitals. They're all busy, okay? We can't just close places and try to fill in another place. It doesn't work that way. Over the weekend, Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer and New York City Mayor Eric Adams spoke out against the proposal. Both of them said they would actively fight to keep the hospitals open. Republican Representative Nicole Maliotakis took a similar stance. That under no circumstances can they close our Brooklyn VA hospital. Right. Yeah. yeah. Supporting our veterans is a bipartisan issue. Ensuring that our veterans get the care that they deserve should not be something uh, that is politicized. In a statement to NTD, the Department of Veterans Affairs said, It is important to note that any recommendations to the upcoming AIR commission are just that, recommendations. Nothing is changing now for veteran access to care or VA employees. Any potential changes to VA's health care infrastructure may be several years away. The heads of New York's two firefighter unions reportedly might sue the city because of its vaccine mandate. As of last week, athletes and performers in the city don't have to be vaccinated anymore, but all public and private sector employees still have to be vaccinated in order to work in the city. The heads of the union said they want to sit down with Mayor Adams to discuss the mandate. Adams responded that he is willing to sit down with everybody who wants to talk to him, but he made clear that no changes to mandates will be made before his health experts advise him to do so. He called it removing the mandates in layers. 
Around 1,400 city workers lost their jobs when the public sector mandate was implemented. The Los Angeles Police Department says that Chris Rock will not be pressing charges against Will Smith. This is after Smith slapped Rock in the face during the Academy Awards on Sunday night. However, the police department also said that if Rock decides to file a police report at a later date, the LAPD will be available to complete an investigative report. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the organizers of the Oscars, also said it's officially started a formal review around the incident. During the awards ceremony, Rock made a joke about Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith's hair loss, referencing the movie G.I. Jane, where the lead actress shaves her head. Smith promptly walked on stage and smacked Rock across the face before sitting back down and shouting at Rock. The moment initially seemed like a gag for the show, but later became clear it was unscripted. Smith found out he won Best Actor for King Richard only minutes later. He tearfully apologized to his fellow nominees and members of the Academy, but not to Rock. Following the incident, the organizers of the Oscars ceremony said on Twitter that it does not condone violence of any form. Despite the drama, the 94th Academy Awards still drew the second lowest ratings in its history. And over the weekend, fans paid tribute to Taylor Hawkins. They gathered outside the Bogota Hotel where the Foo Fighters drummer was found dead. Hawkins was the drummer for Foo Fighters for 25 years and the best friend of frontman Dave Grohl. He died at age 50 during a South American tour with the rock band. Police were also outside the hotel in northern Bogota when fans laid flowers and lit candles in Hawkins' memory. There are few immediate details on how Hawkins died. The band said in a statement Friday that his death was a tragic and untimely loss. Coming up, grocery store workers throughout the southern half of California have authorized their union to call a strike. The move comes after a vote last week and workers may begin to picket if upcoming negotiations don't go their way. And a 70-year-old kidnapper in California may be paroled. He was arrested after kidnapping a bus full of school children in 1976 and holding them for ransom. We'll return soon with NTD News. Grocery store employees in Southern California have authorized their union to go on strike. Labor discussions are set to continue in the coming days, but if there's no progress, the workers may begin picketing supermarkets. Here are the details. Thousands of grocery workers throughout California voted last week to authorize their union to strike. Though a strike has not been confirmed, the union now has member support to begin a strike if labor negotiations make no progress. About 47,000 workers from seven United Food and Commercial Workers local unions, ranging from Central California down to the southern border, cast ballots. The workers are employed at over 500 stores. Employees work at Ralph's, Albertsons and its subsidiaries, Vons and Pavilions. Union officials announced earlier this month that contract talks had stalled. A three-year-old labor contract between the unionized grocery workers and Southern California supermarkets expired March 7th. Grocery employees are continuing to work under the terms of the previous contract. Union officials are asking for a $5 per hour wage increase, sufficient work hours, and higher safety standards. The union said the stores offered a $0.60 cent per hour wage increase. Contract negotiations are scheduled to resume on Wednesday, March 30th. A Southern California school district is considering banning critical race theory. In a special board meeting, trustees discussed detailed definitions that the theory would teach students. The Placentia Yorba Linda Unified School Board held a special meeting on March 23rd to discuss a resolution to halt the teaching of critical race theory, or CRT. Leandra Blades, a trustee on the school board, is pushing for the ban. She told the Epic Times, a lot of people are leaving and going to charter schools and private schools for traditional learning curriculum that doesn't teach CRT. The school board went through multiple CRT teaching points and definitions that are up for ban. 
A person's race determines their moral character and makes them responsible for past transgressions of that race. Because of this, some people should be treated differently or discriminated against because of their race. I just have to say flat out, I've just never heard that as something I stated, that I, your morals are based on your race. I, I have not either. Yeah, I just never, I don't understand the purpose of that here, but evidently according to some source of critical race theory, it is thought to be the case. Other points discussed students ranking people based on characteristics like race, sexual identity, and religion. The text defined traits like work ethic as racist. Traits such as work ethic or devotion to duty and obligations are inherently racist. I haven't, again, I have not seen that in CRT, so I disagree. And this one, I, I disagree. I, I, I don't know, my mind went to work ethic. I've never heard anything associated work ethic with race. But moreover, what do we do in our, our careers classes when we talk about the importance of work ethic? Blades began her attempt to ban CRT late last year after receiving complaints from high school students about papers they had to write based on their teachers' political beliefs. She said that students who didn't share their teachers' opinion got marked down. Despite her opposition about CRT, Blades said she doesn't oppose teaching about Jim Crow laws, displacement of Native Americans, segregation, or slavery. The attorney for public school districts, Todd Robbins, said the resolution needed more clarity on consequences of a teacher promoting CRT discussion in the classroom. He said without enforcement guidelines, the resolution could be declared unconstitutional in court. A 70-year-old kidnapper in San Francisco was recommended for parole after being incarcerated since 1976. He is no longer considered a threat to society, as it's been decades since he kidnapped a bus full of children and demanded millions in ransom money. Here's more. Parole commissioners recommended on Friday the parole for the last of three men convicted of hijacking a school bus in 1976. The bus was full of school children and the men demanded a $5 million ransom. The two commissioners decided the 70-year-old Frederick Woods is no longer a threat to society. He has been denied parole 17 times before. But Governor Gavin Newsom can still reject the parole recommendation. Woods' accomplices were paroled in 2012 and 2015. The three men, who came from wealthy Bay Area families, kidnapped 26 children and their bus driver. They buried the bus in an underground bunker east of San Francisco. The victims dug themselves out in less than two days' time. All three were initially sentenced to prison for the rest of their lives. But an appeals court later reduced their sentences to life with the possibility of parole. They planned for over a year to ransom the children for $5 million from the State Board of Education. Another Bay Area news outlet is the recent victim of crime. This time, it was an entire office. Property was lost, but fortunately, no injuries were reported. The city of Oakland has seen a few recent incidents of news crews being robbed and attacked. However, this time, it was a newspaper office. Employees at the Oakland Post came in on Thursday morning to find their offices ransacked. The paper's editor, Paul Cobb, told Mercury News that fortunately nobody was hurt during the crime. The paper's business manager said they estimate a loss of about $15,000 in property and damages. The Oakland police said they are still investigating the incident and no arrests have been made so far. The Oakland Post is where slain journalist Chauncey Bailey worked as editor when he was assassinated in 2007. Bailey was killed by the former leader of your black Muslim bakery for an investigative story the journalist was working on. Earlier this month, a portion of the street the Oakland Post is located on was named Chauncey Bailey Way in the journalist's honor. Jason Blair, NTD News, California. The NCAA tournament is down to just the final four teams, and what a historic foursome they are. Duke, North Carolina, Villanova, and Kansas are about as star-studded as it gets. NTD's Dave Martin has more. 
Bitter rivals North Carolina and Duke have played each other 257 times. They've played as one versus two, and they've played with conference championships on the line. But never has so much been at stake as it will be this weekend when their first NCAA tournament clash takes place at the Final Four in what could be Coach K's last game. The Tar Heels would like nothing more than to send Coach K into retirement with a loss to his bitter rival on college basketball's biggest stage. Meanwhile, the Blue Devils would like nothing more than to send their coach out in style with a sixth national title, punctuated by a win over his toughest adversary, especially after North Carolina ruined his final home game with a 13-point win just a few weeks ago. Only a Duke-Carolina matchup could overshadow another Kansas-Villanova showdown, their third in the last six NCAA tournaments. Kansas just passed Kentucky for the most wins ever, but Villanova has had their number recently. The Wildcats squeaked past KU 64-59 in an Elite Eight battle in 2016 on their way to a national championship. Two years later, the pair met again at the Final Four, and although KU had revenge on their minds, it was the Wildcats that ran them out of the building, while setting a record for most threes made in the national semifinals en route to another championship. Dave Martin, NTD News. And on to football. The Buffalo Bills could get a new $1.4 billion stadium as part of a 30-year lease proposed on Monday. State and county taxpayers would have to pay a combined $850 million in public funds towards its construction. The NFL and the Bills would kick in the other $550 million. The amount of tax money proposed for this project is believed to be the most ever committed to an NFL stadium. That's according to the Associated Press. The Buffalo News previously reported that the $750 million in public funds used to construct the Las Vegas Raiders Allegiant Stadium was previously the highest. The proposed 60,000-plus seat facility will be built across the street from the current Bills Stadium in Orchard Park. Officials have included the proposal in the state budget, which lawmakers must vote on by Friday. A decade ago, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, then a state senator, had the idea of hosting a black men's brunch. The goal was to help build the black community by supporting black-owned restaurants and mentoring the youth. The event started with just 40 people, but this year, hundreds attended. Saturday was the 10th anniversary of the brunch. NTD's Jason Perry was there. Yes. History has shown us what they did to King, yes. what they did to Malcolm, what they did to Marcus, what they did uh, to Omega. This is history. Are we going to live the same history or are we going to define our own history? That's this moment. That's what Black Men Brunch is about. This year, the brunch was held at the Simpson Restaurant and Bar in Brooklyn. Actor and author Jamie Hector was a keynote speaker. Is the fact that people need people, especially young adolescent minds need adult men that are moving in a positive direction to affect their lives and change their lives. Let's salute these brothers from Maine up, please. Syriac St. Ville hosted the event. He's the vice president of 500 Men Making a Difference, which offers a mentorship program. When a young man's graduating from the first time from elementary high school or junior high school, when he's getting married, when he's thinking about proposing to his wife, those are things that they find in the brunch. And when he's talking about starting that business, he's there to talk to someone that has 25 years in that same industry. Albert Pineda is one such young man. I want to start in real estate, and I know a couple of people in here are in real estate, so I can get advice from them, and that could be very helpful for my career in the future. Reverend Kirsten John Foy explained what's behind the effort to help the youth. It's love for my God. It's love for my children. It's love for my family, my wife, my, my parents, my father, myself. Uh, it, it, it starts with love, but then it's got to move beyond just love because love is just an emotion. We've got to put action to that love. We've got to use that love as the fuel to motivate us to do the transformational work. The Black Men's Brunch says over the years it has mentored more than 200 young men and spent more than $30,000 at local businesses. 
We know what it was to live under Jim Crowism. We know what it was uh, to go through racism. We know what it is. We're resilient, and we need to lean into that resiliency. Well, uh, the mere fact that we're here shows that we're miracles. The Black Man's Brunch started 10 years ago, and they said about 40 people attended the brunch. This year, over 300 people attended with standing room only. I'm sure next year they'll plan for a bigger venue. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York. COVID-19 brought changes and challenges to many businesses. How did the pandemic impact the franchise industry? NTD's Chenny Wu spoke with an expert to find out. Despite the pandemic, the International Franchise Association, or IFA, said that franchising had an exceptional year in 2021, and they expect 2022 to be a year of recovery. Tipton Schunkweiler is the president of a franchise development consulting firm. He says adaptability is very important for franchises to remain strong during these uncertain times. You've got to be able to be just steadfast and you've got to be able to think and work with your customers and find innovative ways to service your customer and also to deliver products. For example, he said that many restaurants have adopted options such as drive-through or delivery. Schunkweiler said the policies and restrictions in different states made a difference as well, saying the states that had fewer restrictions and opened up earlier had more franchise activity. There were a lot of people leaving the West Coast in the case of California and some of the other Pacific, Pacific Northwest states, and now going to states like Arizona, states like Nevada, where there were less restrictions and they could actually you know, start selling franchises in those markets to continue their brand growth. According to the IFA, franchise employment in 2022 is expected to increase by 257,000 jobs compared to 2021. Chenny Wu, NTD News. Coming up, Shanghai is going under lockdown and all 26 million people. This is the biggest lockdown since Wuhan 2020. And search teams have located the second black box of the crashed China Eastern Airlines flight. Officials have confirmed that none of the 132 people on board survived. More in just a moment here on NTD News. Despite media reports to the contrary, it seems China is still sticking with its zero COVID policy. Shanghai announced Sunday it will lock down its 26 million residents. They'll have to stay home. Offices and certain businesses will be closed and public transportation will be suspended. They're trying to stamp out the Omicron variant. But are mass lockdowns the right way to deal with Omicron? Here's NTD's Don Ma. Shanghai is going under lockdown. It's China's biggest one since Wuhan in 2020. But professor of epidemiology Dr. Harvey Risch at Yale says mass lockdowns are not the right way to tackle Omicron. Lockdowns are never the way to go. If you want to destroy the society, then lock it down for six to eight months. Yale epidemiologist Rich says due to its high transmissibility, the only effective method to deal with Omicron is through herd immunity. China will never get out of Omicron. Omicron is too infectious for any method to work. You need herd infection to prevent the massive waves going forward. And, and China has not allowed its population to get immunity. Locking down will just slow the, the process down. The Omicron strain may be highly transmissible, but symptoms are milder, which makes having lockdowns seem even more impractical. The Omicron strain is comparable to a typical seasonal flu uh, in mortality. In fact, the uh, UK has put out uh, information that you can calculate the mortality of Omicron compared to Delta. It's less than a third to a quarter what Delta was, it should be viewed as just another typical respiratory illness at this point. Dr. Risch says Beijing has only two paths it can go down in dealing with this virus. China basically has to decide whether it's going to destroy its society over this or it's going to treat it and, and, and accept it and move on. Shanghai entered a two-stage lockdown Monday. Part of the city will go under lockdown from Monday to Friday and the rest from Friday to next Tuesday. Don Ma, NTD News. Chinese officials say the second black box from the China Eastern Airlines flight that crashed has been located 
and all 132 people on board have been confirmed dead. A Chinese official has confirmed that all passengers and crew members of the crashed China Eastern Airline flight are dead. We here announce that the 123 passengers and nine crew members on board China Eastern Airlines flight MU5735 on March 21st have all died. He added that authorities have identified 120 of the victims through DNA analysis, and Chinese state media reported Sunday that search crews found the plane's second black box, the flight data recorder. The device was about five feet deep beneath the ground, some 130 feet away from the crash site. Although partially damaged, its data storage unit appears to be in good condition and has been sent to Beijing for analysis. Investigators are now decoding another black box, the cockpit voice recorder found earlier last week. Flight MU5735 suddenly went into a near-vertical dive mid-flight and crashed in Guangxi province in southern China. Obtaining data from its two recorders is considered key to understanding the cause of the accident. Flight data recorders store crucial details, including airspeed, altitude, direction, and engine power. They can also record the position of wing flaps and whether the plane was flying on autopilot. Coming up, French veterans took to the streets this weekend to send a message to the country's presidential candidates. A general says officials are using the pandemic to avoid talking about other serious issues. And a fight over historic gas-powered lamps in London. They've lit the streets for hundreds of years. Now they're being replaced with electric replicas, but there's pushback. More on that when we return here on NTD News. Former soldiers took to the streets this weekend to send a message to the country's presidential candidates. Some say President Macron's five years in office have put France in grave danger and divided the country. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has more details. Several hundred Parisians took to the streets on Sunday to participate in a parade led by former members of the military and veterans in the streets of the French capital. It is very unusual to see a military parade taking place outside of the National Day in France. Two weeks ahead of the presidential election, the organizers wanted to send a message to the candidates. General Antoine Martinez said France has been through different crises, including feeling unsafe in society. I think our current leaders are using the Covid crisis and the war in Ukraine to avoid talking of very serious subjects. The French armed forces are popularly known as the Great Mute because the military have the obligation not to speak while they are on duty. It's a custom also followed by veterans, but about a year ago some former officials stopped being silent. In an open letter published on May the 11th, several generals launched a petition to address a growing violence in society. According to these generals, the violence now seen in France will be followed by a chaos, or as some of them believe, a civil war. The petition drew almost 300,000 signatures. Captain Jean-Pierre Fabre Bernadac, who co-organized the parade, says that the country is decaying from within. Our message is, the country seems to be dying. It implodes and seems we don't believe in ourselves. This is very serious. Moreover, we see new trends such as wokeism and the cancel culture. So it looks like our country is dying one step after another. Others say there's a lack of sovereignty and that the French president is influenced by the EU Commission. This is the case of former officer Guy Chabot, who served in the Algerian war. This is a catastrophe. I am ashamed. I am ashamed of being French when I see all those bad things around me. I think we are being lied to. We are under different influences, such as Brussels. The first round of the presidential election will be held on April 10th. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Campaigners are fighting to save historic gas-powered lamps that have lit some of London's streets for hundreds of years. Westminster City Council has already begun replacing them with electric replicas, but it has agreed to pause the work while it consults with local groups. NTD's Neil Woodrow brings us this report.
A Georgian alley tucked away in London's Covent Garden area has been bathed in the same warm light for hundreds of years. At night, these gas-powered lamps illuminate the way for pedestrians with their Dickensian glow. Campaigners say these lamps are part of London's heritage and attraction. Luke Honey is co-founder of the London Gasketeers, a group set up to protect the last of the lamps. Gas lamps are very much part of London's DNA. Um, they've been immortalised on television, in film, in books, in literature. And London is one of the first cities in the world to have gas lamps in 1807 in Pall Mall. So they're very much part of what people who come to London look for. They're very much part of our history. They deserve to be saved. But the lamps are being threatened with being replaced by LED replicas. On Cecil Court, antiquarian bookseller Tim Bryars is concerned that converting lamps there to electricity will have a negative impact on the shops on this quintessentially London street. I think that the, the gas lamps, their, their very existence benefits my business. People don't come to London to see bland uniformity. Uh, you know, it might be more convenient perhaps administratively if everything is, is standardised, but that makes life incredibly dull. He says seeing working gas lamps is part of the street's charm. Westminster Council said the 200-year-old fittings are increasingly difficult to maintain as spare parts are difficult to come by. Campaigners argue the process of manufacturing new lights and digging up streets to connect them would negate any environmental benefit they have over the gas originals. London's gas lamps are currently cared for by a specialist team from British Gas. They look after around 1,000 gas street lamps across London, including 270 or so in the Westminster area. While some switch on and off via a modern battery system, others still operate using a more traditional method. Approximately 500 of them have mechanical clocks that need winding every two weeks that are very reliable, but they do need winding. And... Generally, the team says the lamps are quite robust and spare parts for these heritage lamps are readily available. We, we get glass manufactured, we've got spare parts galore for these lamps that we've refurbished over the years and we've also got manufacturers that we use that still make the parts today that can be altered to suit different types of lamps. Westminster Council has agreed to pause the work while it consults with residents and local groups. It would not comment on what criteria the review will follow to make recommendations for the future of the project. Its conclusions are expected by the end of the year. In the meantime, Luke Honey is optimistic the remaining lamps can be saved. Neil Woodrow, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.